Welcome to the podcast. I'm Shira Schoenberg from Commonwealth Magazine. As Massachusetts businesses start to reopen, one burning question for many working parents of young children is who will watch my kids? Beginning this week, non-emergency daycares will be allowed to submit reopening plans to the state and reopen soon after. Daycares will have to comply with state health and safety guidelines that include reduced class sizes and new space requirements. Children will be encouraged to wear masks and remain six feet apart, and they won't be allowed to share toys. Joining me today are two experts on childcare. Amy O'Leary is the Director of Early Education for All, a campaign of strategies for children that aims to ensure all children have access to early childhood education. She is the past president of the National Association for the Education of Young Children. Tammy Inman is the owner and director of Whittle Kids Inc. in North Falmouth, a childcare center started by her parents in 1982 that serves 95 children. Thank you both for joining me. Tammy, you were the impetus for a petition on change.org that's gotten more than 35,000 signatures calling on the Department of Early Education and Care to revise their standards. So tell me a little bit about how that petition came about and what your concerns are. Thank you. So the petition came about a parent at my school who has two children enrolled with me took a, an answer that I provided uh, in a survey to EEC and formulated a petition to put forth to uh, everyone out there looking for early childhood options for their children. Basically, I'm really scared for my business. I'm scared for my families and my teachers. Uh, we really just want to get back to what we do best, which is caring for young children. And the restrictions, I feel, are going to force many young, many childcare centers to close their doors, not open, or even, even if they wait until September, that might mean for them that they won't make it. So give me a couple of concrete examples. You know, what did you read in the guidelines where you said, hey, wait a sec, this just isn't going to work for my center? Well, for my center, the biggest one that popped out was the reduced enrollment, uh, the reduced class sizes for my pre-K and my preschool classroom, which right now have 20 in my preschool and 19 in my pre-K. They reduced that down to 10, but they also increased the square footage needed per child. So when my father built the school in 1982, he built the school based on the square footage needed per child with a little bit extra. And the building, I don't have the option to change that. I don't have additional space. I don't have separate entry points into my program. So really, that was a huge one for me because right there is tuition. I, don't, I can't increase tuition on my families, as we all know that they can't afford increased tuition. And then to the families, in good conscience, I don't know how I can sit down and pick and choose from 76 families who's allowed to come and who can't. So from your perspective, financially as a center, your concern is you're going to have to cut the number of kids, and then you might not be able to get enough money in to run your center. Correct. Amy, uh, you've talked a lot about the need for more funding for early education. I imagine Tammy's not the only one facing these kind of financial struggles. Um, what, what's the pandemic doing to child care centers financially? What more needs to be done to make sure that centers can continue to operate? What we know is before COVID-19, even at full enrollment, the child care market was broken. The way the system is financed left too few children with access to high quality early childhood settings, 
too many educators living on poverty level wages, and too many programs one rent payment away from closing down. And we know that our uh, system is complex and with many different funding streams, both public and private dollars in the system. We also know that programs are going to need flexible, stable, additional funds to have a chance of making it in the new reality in the short term as we continue to deal with this public health crisis and in the long term as we think about you know, building the system stronger. So I, I, Tammy is not the only one and many of the questions and concerns that she raised we're hearing from across the state of Massachusetts. We're also hearing it across the country. Um, Massachusetts was rare that we closed our childcare system and now have to reopen it. One concern that we have seen across the states is that um, the utilization rates are still very low, that parents are having to make decisions about whether to send their children back to programs. And, and Strategies for Children launched a parent survey for April and May, and what we know is the parent perspective is involving. So our survey captures kind of where parents were for those two months. But we found that 60% of parents responding said they're struggling to work from home without childcare. 46% said they will not be able to return to work without a consistent solution. 87% uh, said that they would be hesitant to return to childcare due to health concerns. And as Tammy said, while 70% hope to return to their pre-COVID arrangements, we don't know the guarantee or how that will even work logistically. And that was one thing that really struck me from your survey was it seemed like only two thirds of parents that they actually plan to return to their previous childcare provider when the governor reopens childcare. And I think this was before those guidelines came out. Why is that number so low? You know, what are parents thinking? I think we need to, we know that parents are going to demand, the parent demand is going to drive the system. So understanding, and I think some, we, we right now are, don't have a great mechanism for collecting that information. And I think Tammy, along with directors and family child care providers are reaching out to their families. The other finding in the survey was that 94% of parents were still connected to their current provider. So we know this relationship that is built on trust is important to both the providers and the families. And I think parents, like every other person right now living in this new world, are making decisions every day with, with the health, balancing health and safety concerns for kind of not knowing what could happen with this virus, but also thinking about wanting to get back to normal and thinking about their own jobs. We also know that there are, you know, some parents may have the benefit from working from home. Some parents are going to have to go back to where they were working or already have been. So we have to think about how communities are working together to first understand this real-time supply and demand, then think about what technical assistance will programs need to get back up and running, and then, as Tammy alluded to, this cost-based financing. And we know the answer is not doubling parent fees. We know that the money has to come uh, from somewhere, and that's why we believe that advocacy is going to be even more critical uh, at this juncture. But we also know we can't go back to the way it was. Tammy, what are you hearing from parents at your center? I think that a huge fear that lies within our families is after reading these guidelines, is placing their children into settings which are not conducive to caring for young children. I've spoken with parents who are afraid of the virus. I have spoken with parents who work from home but can't work from home with their children there. 
I've spoken to mothers who are going to lose their jobs, frankly, even if they make more money than their husband, because their husband can't do the six hour shifts with the children. One child, you know, one might be an infant, one might be a toddler, and that's difficult to say the least. So I've found that parents really do want to get back. And when I talked with them and I told them that I will do everything in our power to make the environments safe, healthy, increase cleaning, increase our sick policies to, you know, lengthier times at home if the children are ill, temperature checks, things that we can do easily without disrupting the children's daily lives. I don't think that not sharing toys is something that's possible with two and three-year-olds or getting rid of circle time and not having sensory, but teachers are amazing and they can adapt their environments for these kids. So I think that the parents really wanna come back. They need to come back. They need to come back to get their jobs you know, back up and running. If the communication is there with the provider and the teachers and the families that we can make that happen. The problem is, is that if they allowed me to open with my full enrollment, I wouldn't have to rely on any subsidies or grants or anything like that. If they allowed me, I've already lost the money I've lost that the business has made over the years and I can't get that back, but that's okay. If they can allow us to open not reduced enrollment with us being safe, with us increasing you know, certain protocols and um, safety measures, I think parents will slowly trickle in. And, and I bet Amy would you know, agree with this. I don't think our classrooms will be full right out, the, right out the gate, as I noticed from her survey. They might be at 60 to 70% capacity. And that's okay because everyone has different feelings on it. But I think that we really need to speak loud and clear because there's many childcare centers that I have spoken to across the state who are closing their doors. They can't afford another two months closed. They've laid off all their employees. They don't have the enrollment to, to sustain. It's, a really, it's really hard. I haven't laid off one teacher in this entire pandemic. I've lost about $40,000 of earnings since 2011 but the ppp funds are running out we need answers from eec uh so it's it's tough i have this sick feeling in my stomach every day but i'm trying to fight and and push forward and be the voice for the centers that are around us whether on cape cod or outer out western mass or across you know because if they close i have a wait list there's other places that have wait lists all these children are going to be left more children than before will be left without childcare. So both of you have been talking about this need for increased money in the system to keep providers afloat. Amy, where could that money come from? Well, I think Tammy, you know, hearing, hearing Tammy and, and the way she's talking about it and the passion that she has and the worry that she has. So I think um, we know that we, we, as a former preschool teacher and director, we have to rely on the innovation, creativity, and can-do attitude of this community. But it's not going to be enough. And I think um, right now we're sitting in a place in Massachusetts where 
our state budget typically would be well on its way to being final and we haven't started that process yet. We know our federal delegation has led the way in Washington, D.C. with proposals from Senator Warren for $50 billion and Congresswoman, uh, uh, Congresswoman Catherine Clark for $100 billion. We know other legislators have signed on to this. And we know the state is also waiting to see what funds might be available for the, from the federal government. So I, I believe that we are going to, if we think of our system right now, 85% of our market is somehow relied on private pay. And the, the private pay is a little bit of a misnomer that, that, there's, that it might be people that have ex excessive resources. It's really out of pocket. So parents who are paying out of their own pocket um, might not be um, eligible for a subsidy because they make $5 too much over the limit. They, there are not enough subsidies in the system to support all families that might be eligible. I think, you know, Tammy highlights the challenge of this public privately funded system. And right now, I think one other piece we're looking to is around K-12. As K-12 is offering guidance to districts, that is going to impact families' decisions about what they do with their young children. If schools go every other week, what does that mean? Where does school age fit in? And both of you raised the specter that a lot of kids are not going to come back. You know, it might be that parents choose not to send their children back right now because of health or safety concerns, because they don't like the guidelines. It might be that a center has to reduce capacity. They don't have access. Are there broader implications for what this means for the state workforce and for the ability of parents to participate in the state workforce? Maybe I'll start with you, Amy. Sure. I think part of the anxiety and fear that has, has been kind of where this is rooted is even, you know, when childcare closed, there was a lot of talk about how we need childcare for this economic recovery. But we heard, you know, elected leaders understand that connection, but then talk about, well, maybe childcare can open early. Even the confusion about childcare was going to open Monday morning. We know this is going to be a process. So I think we need to think about the current workforce. We need to have employers ask their employees and think about what the employees need. How are employers supporting you know, families of young children? And then we also have to think about our own workforce in early education, uh, which tend to be some predominantly older women who may have their own health concerns. We have younger educators who might live with a grandparent. So this, the health piece, and we're, you know, we're working on six months of science for all of us to think about what are the connections between keeping, you know, children safe, thinking about our economic recovery in a way that's going to work. And we at Strategies really think that the communities have an opportunity to really think about a birth through end of high school continuum to be planning for what do families want and need. We, we know that if families are working from home, they still may need a childcare solution. So maybe they'll be looking closer to their home where before they were looking for sites closer to their work. So we can see a kind of seismic shift on what could be in this system. But the challenge is, is building the plane while we're trying to fly it and understanding kind of these new requirements and what funding is going to be needed to, to keep it going. So Tammy, I know Amy just mentioned this very real concern about the health and safety of childcare workers. Um, the state guidelines were established based on the guidance of medical professionals. They were reviewed by Boston Children's Hospital. Um, they were developed by DPH and by professionals with an eye towards keeping children safe. Are you concerned about these health and safety issues when reopening your center? How do you think about the health of the children and the employees? 
Looking from the statistics that have been put out and the numbers that have been put out for children under the age of 19, I don't see coronavirus as, as really hitting, you know, hitting that group of children at all. I think that we need to focus on the science, definitely, um, and look at those age groups that are most affected. My center and my families and what I'm hearing across the, you know, across the board is that people want to get back. I'm not, you know, I, I don't rely on state funding. The science that has shown, you know, that the children aren't really affected by this kind of goes against what they're putting in place. A teach, an infant teacher is supposed to completely mask up, gown up, glove up to feed a baby a bottle. And I'm not sure what social distancing infants looks like. Does that look like putting babies in pack and plays all day? In preschools, children not holding hands or, you know, high-fiving or playing in sensory tables together. I'm just concerned that is all of that really necessary? Because it's quite frightening for people to look at that when you know how little children are. I mean, we have discussions about germs and washing hands and, you know, kids are picking their nose and then you send them to the sink and they come back to circle and they go right back to picking. This is just the real, you know, real life preschool time. I think that we can be smart. I know that the teachers are wonderful. I know they love what they do. My teachers are phenomenal. They're like family to me. And in small private pay centers like that, you aren't getting a big chain facility when you come to little kids. We haven't advertised in, since 1982. We have grandchildren who now come and their grandparents worked at my school. We have a whole community that we support within little kids, whether it's doctors, children, uh, teachers from all of our elementary schools. So these people really trust me and they trust my teachers and they know that we're gonna do a good job. So. The problem that lies in with me is that I'm being told that I can't open my doors unless I follow A, B, and C, and all those things aren't realistic. How do I tell parents when they drop off, they have to stagger drop-offs because your job isn't, you don't have to be to your job as soon as he does. It, there's so many things in the regulations that just don't make sense, and I think that they need to be revised. I think that we need to think about all points here and that a lot of centers will close. So all of those children waiting for wait on wait lists, all of the children looking to get into preschool, um, public preschool programs and things like that, those are all going to be reduced, which is going to create an astronomical amount of children who need services and families. I think ultimately moms are gonna be the ones that, that feel this because we can't, afford private nannies. The childcare industry is greatly needed and it's being, it's being ignored right now. And I do think there certainly have been some reports of rare diseases or symptoms uh, yes. of COVID-19 appearing in children, though certainly you know, nowhere near as widespread among the adult population. Right. Um, so what are you thinking in terms of timing? Obviously this, this coming week will be the first week that you can submit reopening plans when are you going to open, Tammy? And do you have a sense of what some of your colleagues are thinking? I wanted to open yesterday. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I wanted uh, to open actually on 622 was my goal after I saw what came out because families 
we're excited. It was a week sooner than we were told. Uh, but I honestly don't know if I'll be able to do that because I'm waiting on the on the templates from EEC. I need to submit those, which I will do. I'll stay up every night if I need to and, and get everything ready. I have my entire staff on board, a few that aren't returning, but I have about 15 teachers that are ready to go and be flexible to where they need to go. Classrooms, like they'll change just to keep their job. Uh, there's things within the guidelines too, which I'm sure Amy had looked at, you know, with breaks. I don't know how I'm supposed to find five teachers to, or five individuals to cover break time for my teachers because they're not supposed to float between groups. So I hope to open. I know that I've got everybody on board to open, but I don't know if EEC will approve my forms that I submit because they've put in there some language that says conditionally open. And then in the next paragraph, it says within 60 days, but I can't make it 60 days. So that's why I'm here. <laughs> And Massachusetts clearly is not the only state grappling with this issue. Amy, what, what are other states doing and what can we learn here from the experience of other states? We are digging into that and trying to better understand. I think one thing we have found pretty consistent has been the group size of 10, which is the biggest, a big challenge. Again, like when you have a system that you're paying per kid per, per being there, you know, that, that cutting that number from 20 to 10 is going to have be a challenge. Um, I think, you know, Massachusetts has very high licensing standards to start with. So we're also seeing other states sometimes even having to move to where we started um, as far as, uh, you know, ratios, as far as um, square footage. So I think we're, we are also kind of the utilization piece is really where we're, we're trying to better understand. Um, and we're also getting questions from legislators, from elected officials. And I think, you know, as an advocate, we, we want to support government. And right now I know people in government are making really hard decisions. We're going to make hard decisions about budgets, you know, kind of coming up with these minimum requirements was a process. And I think EEC has been working to try to think about how do you root this in health and safety and then what is possible. I think on Friday, we'll have a good sense in, Ma in Massachusetts about even programs who have or are intended to, to apply. So I think that will give us one piece of data that will be interesting. But we're also looking to think about um, other states, how they're looking to finance things, um, where their advocacy lies, and also um, what decisions they're making around timing. And I think that is important. And, and we are watching along with our other colleagues around the K to 12 system, because ultimately um, kind of whatever we come up with for this summer, you know, may be dramatically different than what it looks like in September for many reasons, because of the health reasons and just because of some of the logistical reasons. So I think we will learn from other states and uh, we will continue. We're going to blog about it this week. So uh, you can check out our blog for a full update. And anyone interested in the child care issue can also read more of our coverage on commonwealthmagazine.org. Amy O'Leary, the Director of Early Education for All, and Tammy Inman, the owner of Little Kids in North Falmouth. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Wheels on the bus go round.